Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Racky. He is the Medical Director of Neurology at Quest Diagnostics. Michael, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. So if you would, um, I think, you know, it's important to get a little bit of context. And you have just a really deep, rich history in this space. Could you give us, you know, the highlights of your career, how you got to this point, um, and, you know, some of the things that you've sort of discovered along the way before we get into the detail of the uh, the topic at hand? So my, my background is, I'm as you, I'm a physician. I did uh, neurology training. And when I did my neurology, uh, it was back in the era, I guess we used to say, we diagnose, we do not treat. Uh, but even more importantly, it was very, I'll say, phenomenological, right? And so one of the things I think that's become very interesting about how I look at things is from the perspective of how, you know, over my career, imaging has dramatically improved, how diagnostic testing has improved, uh, and then uh, interventions itself. I've, I was actually very involved with uh, some of the development, both preclinical and critical, for multiple sclerosis, but it's been sort of the same idea in neurology. We try to diagnose in these neurodegenerative oral disorders as early as we can, because the earlier we intervene, the more likely we are to, to have a beneficial effect in terms of treating a patient. So um, you're right. I mean, the challenge, especially within the brain, I mean, I think that remains, you know, to pull my Star Trek-isms out, you know, undiscovered country, as it were. There's so much still to understand. We continue to sort of expend a lot of energy. And, you know, you specifically mentioned imaging. I think one of the things that really seemed to contribute was functional MRI seemed to be one of the key technological advances that gave us some insights into some of the things that were happening and obviously you know many other areas tell us a little bit about the journey if you would uh to the understanding of you know the brain and specifically in this case we're talking alzheimer's and you know that disease um you know from my history it was untreatable not understood at all if if in any form Tell us a little bit about the journey and the background to that, if you would. Sure. So, you know, like I mentioned before, Alzheimer's disease, when I when we were both medical students, was a clinical pathologic diagnosis. And pathologically, you had to have amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles composed of uh, something called uh, phosphorylated tau in the brain. But I would say from a perspective of like when we were diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, that it was, first of all, it was clinical, right? And so when you had somebody who began having cognitive problems, what were the problems? And if it was somebody who first had aphasia and then maybe had a dementia that became categorized as frontotemporal dementia, 
Um, and then with obviously Alzheimer's disease, it was sort of these, early, you know, language was certainly preserved early on. It was the recent memories that were impaired. And then that led to understanding of things uh, like PET scans. And interestingly, first, it was not uh, the amyloid PET scans, but it was uh, the, the, the glucose metabolism type PET scans, the same kind of PET scans that we use to try to identify, say, cancer in the body. Hmm. But instead of seeing hypermetabolism, you could identify types of uh, neurodegenerative disorders by where in the brain there was hypometabolism. And then that led to developing radionuclides that specifically could bind to amyloid. And so that we had the amyloid PET scan. Subsequent to that, then you could have radionuclides that bound specifically to phosphoroid and tau. And so that all that was the first time that we actually had the diagnosing people who were alive with the disorder, right? Because we now could very specifically say where in the brain the problem was and link that, link that to the clinical picture. Probably 10 to 15 years ago, people began using biomarkers and specifically in the spinal fluid, right? That, where you could see that amyloid precursor protein, which is, you know, uh, uh, a protein that's made on chromosome 21, that when it gets cleaved, one of those peptides, amyloid beta 42, is very prominent in the formation of the amyloid plaque. And so, if you were measuring the 42 to 40 ratio within the brain or within spinal fluid, or you were measuring tau and sort of come up with algorithms that demonstrated somebody potentially had Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things that became very clear as well is that you began to have people that say, for example, looked like frontotemporal dementia, but they had the biomarkers mm -hmm. or the PET scan imaging of Alzheimer's disease. And so then that was called the frontotemporal variant of Alzheimer's disease. And I think that becomes relevant because now with the uh, appearance of treatment, specifically uh, FDA approved to remove amyloid from the brain, it's not so much relevant do I have Alzheimer's disease as do I have a neurodegenerative disorder where amyloid is in the brain and would potentially removal of amyloid be beneficial? Yeah, so I, before we start down that track, I want to just backtrack a little bit because this amyloid plaque thing has permeated for a long period of time, and I've I've sort of seen this you know, up and down in terms of whether it's just an associated finding. And I'm, I'm going to correlate to something um, similar, but I think people understand relatively well, which is prostate cancer, where the, the general consensus, and I know there's, you know, it, 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 there's always devil in the detail, but many people are, are found to die with prostate cancer, far fewer die of prostate cancer. So it's found a lot on... Uh, histopathology as a, I'll call it an incidental finding. I, I'm curious about the relationship between amyloid plaques and Alzheimer's. Is that a similar relationship or is it, do you see a, so a, a strong correlation? So 
I guess it depends how you look at it. So the amyloid hypothesis is the idea is that amyloid gets deposited in the brain, that somewhere along the line that causes changes in neurons that results in the aggregation of tau and the formation of neurofibrillary triangles. And I would say that particularly the autosomal dominant forms of Alzheimer's disease, like the the we had talked earlier about the amyloid precursor protein that you know, mutations in APP or pre-civilin 1 and 2, which cause this dramatic increase in the formation of amyloid, do eventually lead to early-onset Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. right? But you bring up a very important point, and that is that it's clearly the tau that much better correlates with eventually neuronal dropout and then the cognitive findings, right? Right. And so, and then of course you have, you know, there are tauopathies specifically that cause cognitive dysfunction without amyloid. And the, the, the other issue is that, and this gets, uh, I, I think, relevant from like that, is that people start putting amyloid into their brain decades before they get Alzheimer's disease, symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And so, the you know why is it that in some people they do that and they essentially die and you can and, uh, with lots of amyloid in their brain not much in the way of tau and they were cognitively normal their whole life right as right. opposed to those people that you know had the dominant form of alzheimer's disease of course also put in tau in their brain but they become cognitively impaired at a much earlier age uh, and die from Alzheimer's disease, you know, before the age of 50, right? Right. So, so there's clearly, you know, there, there are clearly other factors that sort of play into it. And I think the reason there was so much interest in amyloid, one is because it sort of has given you this marker that perhaps gives you a window of opportunity to do something about it, right? As opposed to some of the later markers where when they, by the time they come up, it's it's clear that already there's significant neuronal dropout and it's the neuronal dropout that we can't really reverse. So uh, is it fair to say that it's still muddy waters in terms of you know those relationships or not is it uh, do you think there's a clear line to be drawn between those two yeah so that i mean there's i would say there's still a little bit of muddy water i would say you know uh for for the people where they say you know we removed amyloid and it didn't work they would argue okay that's going against the amyloid hypothesis and then there would be people who would say yeah, but they did those, uh, many of those trials had poor selection of patients. The early Alzheimer's trials, I bet 30% of the patients didn't even have Alzheimer's disease, right? And so those trials were sort of doomed to failure from the get-go. I think the, you know, it's it's also from the perspective, if, if you already have had a lot of neurodegeneration and then you remove the amyloid, you demonstrated you could remove the amyloid, but it was too late. The, the, the neurodegeneration had already occurred, 
so and the cognitive function didn't improve. I would say that the uh, the recent studies and the studies that you know um, that where we've seen data, for example, Denanomab, which hasn't been FDA approved, but I believe is on the docket to get approved potentially in February. It's clear that you know as these studies go forward we're doing a better job of patient selection. And so the treatments seem to show a better clinical effect, right? Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things that's going to be very relevant is this idea that, you know, can we actually identify patients way before who are still cognitively normal and intervene those are studies that are currently ongoing, but I think that's that's where the excitement is in some sense in the field, right? So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today I'm talking to Dr. Michael Racky. He is the medical director uh, for neurology at Quest Diagnostics. We were just diving uh, deep into the Alzheimer's history, some of the uh, background to the science, the discoveries around amyloid, tau tangles, um, you know, correlation, causation. You know, I, in fairness to everybody here, I think uh, deeply complex subject, very hard to give it full credence in, you know, limited amount of time. But suffice to say, I think what I gathered from you, Michael, is that, you know, there's genuine potential. I think there's clearly been some, I, I, let's call them missteps. Um, I, you know, I, I, I dislike the term failures because I think we can always learn from some of the uh, uh, studies, even if we don't show benefit, uh, particularly if they're poorly designed or they don't select their patients or their endpoints appropriately. Um, it, it sounds to me now that we have uh, both a, a, at least a smoking gun. There's, you know, there's multiple smoking guns potentially, and I think also some treatment options available today. Is that a, a, a fair summary of where we are? Yeah, I would say that is a fair summary. I think the, you know, it's interesting. I don't necessarily want to get into the controversies of some of the, the FDA approval, but one of the things that's clear is. You know, the even with the approval of aducanumab, then to go to lecanumab and hopefully soon to nanumab, you see significant improvement in patient selection in the when we actually treat the patient and then subsequently seeing uh, a delay in cognitive decline, right? Right. And you know, I think the thing that's exciting is that, I mean, there's like a hundred tr treatments that are currently in clinical trial. Right. And there are just constantly improvements, not only in how we diagnose the disease, but also how we monitor uh, both by biomarkers as well as by cognitive testing. Uh, so, I mean, it's really, it's really an exciting time. Yeah, and and to that point, um, you know, on the basis that there's some treatments, and e even prior to treatments, I did hear um, one of my favorite comments around Alzheimer's, you know, particularly with the gene identification, because it's not a one-to-one -one relationship, you know, what's the benefit of that? And one friend of mine said to me, well, I'll just play more Sudoku to try and, you know, preempt any um, 
uh, uh, early onset of Alzheimer's. And, you know, a little bit flippant, but ultimately knowledge is always power. And we're now at this point where we have some uh, treatments available, but the diagnosis still somewhat challenging, but there are some new opportunities around that. Um, and, you know, perhaps I, I'm, I'm going to call it less invasive. You know, you talked about it, especially from a monitoring standpoint, if we're going to understand if these therapies are actually working. And I think, you know, much like cancer, when we identify cancer, particularly with, you know, the traditional means of imaging, and we see a nodule, by the time you see the nodule, you're talking billions, if not trillions of cells. I forget what the numbers are, but you know, many, many weeks, months, even years back, that was forming, but we don't see it. But maybe we see those biomarkers. And that's a lot of the advancements, some of the insights. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in that space, if you would. Sure. So I think one of the things that uh, was clear is that we would develop biomarkers to identify uh, both the fact that amyloid is being deposited into the brain and that you can uh, identify certain species of phosphorylated tau. I would say the, the big ones are P-tau 181, 217, and 231, but there's clearly other ones that are also in development. Uh, PTAU-181, it's kind of interesting. It's It seems to be pretty strong for Alzheimer's disease, but it's also been seen in another very scary disorder, a myotrophic lateral sclerosis or Gehrig's disease. Uh, some of the PTAUs have been seen in some of the other tauopathies. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is the ability to, you know, categorize Alzheimer's disease or neurodegenerative disease and then how one tries to potentially intervene. And, you know, it gets to the point that, uh, all you know, from my perspective, you know, all Alzheimer's disease is dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's disease. But also then from the very specific perspective of, using biomarkers to understand the pathophysiology and then say, can I actually interrupt this pathophysiology in a way that potentially is beneficial? And I think one of the things that's very exciting is that, you know, certainly both by PET scan, we've been able to demonstrate that these monoclonal antibodies can remove amyloid from the brain. Mm. But that you also then see the downstream effect that there's a lowering of some of these P towels, right? So that sort of gets back into this all, you know, the, the amyloid hypothesis. Is amyloid really somehow fundamental in the formation of an aggregation of P tau? Uh, and then I think the other thing is that there's other biomarkers, some of them not specific for Alzheimer's disease, some of them uh, can be used in other disorders, but that. You know, if we look at something like neurofilament-like, that clearly increases as we get older. It increases much more quickly if we have a dementing illness. It also increases, in, for example, if somebody has an attack of multiple sclerosis. So it's it's not specific for Alzheimer's disease necessarily. It's much more specific for damage to neuronal axons. And on the flip side, 
a molecule like glial fibrillary acidic protein is a molecule that, you know, is made by astrocytes. And astrocytes, I'd say, are like the fibroblasts of the brain. They're mm. supporting tissue, but they also cause the scarring. That appears to be a good marker and a, um, as, as for looking at the treatment effects for some of these monoclonals. It's also been a marker to look at scarring in the brain and diseases like multiple sclerosis and uh, perhaps a defining marker for secondary progressive MS. So we're beginning to, to identify markers that allow us to better see where a patient is on the Alzheimer's continuum. And, you know, I suspect one of the things that seems very clear as well, you know, is that when people uh, advocate for these wellness, right, and how good are we at making effects in these neurodegenerative diseases, one of the things we see is that if we lose weight, exercise more, you're talking about doing Sudoku and exercising the brain, that what we see is that not only does that seem to push back the onset, uh, the clinical onset of Alzheimer's disease, you see some improvement in the biomarkers as well, hmm. right? And so I think that those are all very positive signs that we are making progress against some of these very devastating neurodegenerative disorders. Yeah, so uh, in, in the limited amount of time that we've got left, um, if you would, could you try and summarize what a patient should be thinking about? You know, we're, we're, we're all approach, you know, age is, is inevitable. Um, how do people approach this? How would you advise people to approach it? It's obviously a, a rapidly changing landscape. There's major advances. There's clearly opportunity. And, you know, I think like most diseases, my sense is if you get to it earlier, you've got more of an opportunity to deflect the course or even be preventative, how should they approach it? Right. So, I mean, I think that uh, certainly for people who have family history, and it could be family history for late onset Alzheimer's disease, right? If you have, if I have APOE4 running in my family, that's mm -hmm. more, more likely. But it seems, like I said, it seems very clear now, this idea of wellness, uh, that I think that seems to me to be the big thing going forward. And that certainly if you or your uh, partner notices early signs of cognitive dysfunction, that that gets evaluated as soon as possible. Hmm. Because, you know, whereas when we were, as I mentioned before, when we were students, we didn't really do anything. But now we have options. And, and those options are just getting better and better all the time. So I, I, as I think about this, you know, long course in this history, I mean, many um, elements of progress in terms of understanding the disease, the underlying physiological, genomic, um, even, you know, I would suggest proteomic um, elements of this and what contributes to it. I think we've made tremendous advances. We've obviously made advances in terms of potential treatment. I know there's, as you described, some controversy around that. But, you know, as we start to understand this more and better, we've got more opportunity to understand what's actually working, especially if we can correlate the biomarkers that you're talking about that we've started to identify and can, I, I imagine, test for 
and use those as monitoring or yardsticks for progress of you know either the disease or importantly for any of the treatments and then um as we start to understand this more obviously that opens up the door potentially for more treatment availability um that you know gives people hope because i think certainly in my era and i think you and i described this the i don't want to call it hopeless but it felt a little bit hopeless when you had that diagnosis it was okay you know um and i think that'd be an accurate statement well accurate unfortunately but you know now that's potentially not the case and that's great news some exciting times Unfortunately, as we do each and every week, uh, we've run out of time. So it just remains for me to thank you uh, for joining me on the, sh- on the show. Michael, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at Dr. Nick one on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. Evolution.